Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Uh, congratulations to Tony in getting through that with everything that was going on around him. Uh, so we're continuing our study of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, and if you're here for the first time, can I give you a really warm welcome? I hope you feel at ease among us. Uh, but for those of you here last week, you will remember we considered chapter one of this second letter of Paul's to the Thessalonians. This week, we're going to study the first 12 verses uh, of chapter two. In all my years of standing behind lecterns, I have never preached on this passage before, and in honor of that, I have produced the creepiest slides ever to emerge from my computer. Christianity says that history is a grand story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And in this little letter, the Apostle Paul is focusing on the end of the story. In chapter 1, he taught us that there is coming a day when God, if you like, shall take this earth by the scruff of the neck, and he will establish his authority, and his will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't pray that for nothing, you know. The prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, recorded in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, it isn't just hitching our wagon to an impossible star. It will one day happen. One day the skies will part and Christ will return to judge the world with fairness and justice. And there are hints in both letters that Paul had drummed that truth into the heads of the church members in Thessalonica. He had formed a new way of understanding life and history in their minds. Today, we might say, he had built a new worldview into them, something that allowed them to make sense of the tough times that they were living through. But as we're going to see in this study, their confidence in the Christian worldview had been rocked. Now, before we read the passage together, I would like you to remind you of a whinging, dreary song called Imagine. Not yet. It was composed and performed by the late John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. And in many ways that song is an anthem to modernism. Humanity decided to shut God out of his own creation. The windows of heaven were closed to him, slammed shut, and man chose, as it were, to live under the sun in a materialistic, physical universe. God was dead, and man became the measure of things. So in a world like that, what was humanity's purpose? Was there still a grand story? Well, Charles Darwin and Karl Marx put one together. They supplied a new story. They created a new mythology, a counterfeit of the Bible's view of history. I'd like you to uh, uh, examine this photo. Those of you in your 50s may remember a singer called Belinda Carlyle. It's terrifying to think that Belinda Carlyle is 60 years old. I was profoundly in love with her during the 1980s. Uh, and she had one really big hit uh, in 1987. It was called Heaven is a Place on Earth. Now, there is more physical, philosophical truth in a Chinese fortune cookie than is contained in the song lyrics, but the title is helpful for our study. You see, the modern world decided to create a counterfeit a counterfeit to Paul's story of Christ's return. It, of course, rejected the apostles' analysis that the human heart is so sinful that we can't fix ourselves. We, they say, could build heaven on earth. Humanists said we shall triumph by the power of man's spirit and we'll build a utopia, a wonderful future place where children laugh as they run through cornfields, a world with no war or hunger or pain. Man shall achieve this on his own, 
we shall build our own heaven on earth. Technology, education, and commerce, and socialism would combine to pull humanity away from the religious superstitions of the past and into a beautiful, peaceful future. We don't need any Christ to split the skies and set up a millennial kingdom. Kingdom, We could do this on our own. Thank you very much. Well, it wasn't a novel idea at all. The Apostle Paul would have listened to all that talk with a wry smile on his face. Actually, I'm not sure if Paul did wry smiles, but anyway. He said he could say, well, I agree that you humanists will try very hard to build heaven on earth, but it will end in disaster. And with that discussion in mind, let's now read the first 12 verses of chapter 2. Pew Bible, page number 989. The first 12 verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And I'm going to read another passage from Isaiah. Uh, We did it last week. If you turn back to Isaiah chapter 14, one of the most magnificent, chilling pieces of ancient poetry you will ever encounter. Pew Bible 577. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 9, and this is a taunt uh, as the, this strange figure called the king of Babylon um, dies. Verse 9. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. And all of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you. And worms are your covers. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who led the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly to the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
but you are brought down to shell, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. As you can see from the screen, we were going to divide our verses. We're back on page 989, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to divide these 12 verses into four sections. So in verses 1 to 2, we're going to consider the danger of believing a lie. In verses 3 to 5, we encounter the biggest lie ever told. In verses 6 through 8, the long battle for truth is described. And then finally, in verses 9 to 12, we consider the horror of loving a lie. So let's get underway by thinking about the first two verses. When Paul had been talking to these Thessalonians, taking them through their discipleship course, he had built, as I said, a worldview into their heads. They knew that although their daily lives were full of affliction and persecution, one day the skies would part and Christ would appear to right all wrongs and bring them relief from their suffering. But something had happened which had caused their mental foundations to shake. Their worldview, if you like, had experienced a sort of earthquake and had left those poor believers in an anxious state of mind. You see, a theological error had entered into the church. Now, the Apostle Paul wasn't entirely sure how that false teaching had wormed its way into the church, but he strongly suspected that a forgery was to blame. Someone had written a letter purporting to be from Paul himself, but it was a counterfeit. It was a forgery. But unfortunately, the Thessalonian believers had believed a lie. Now, to explain the cleverness of the deception, we need to take a slight detour. We need to think for a minute or two about Thessalonica as a city. Thessalonica was a very political city. It had an elected assembly called the Demos, and unlike our assembly, it actually met. It even transacted real business. And there was also a big temple dedicated to emperor worship right in the center of town. Now, Thessalonica was a busy trading center, so commerce and politics made for this dangerous cocktail. Think about the business of getting elected to power. It always seems to involve some form of manipulation, doesn't it? Think of the skullduggery that went on 50 years ago to keep the mayors of the big cities like Chicago in power. You see, most of society runs on rules. It's not lawless, but when it comes to politics, well, the old saying is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, here's the thing. In Thessalonica, the entire society worked like that. It was never what you knew. It was always who you knew. Society was divided into two classes called patrons and clients. Patrons were the top 5%. They were the ruling elite, uh, the wealthy benefactors. Now, obviously, most of those uh, patrons, those wealthy guys, were unbelievers. But a small number of them had got converted. You can read about it in Acts. The church in Thessalonica had a number of these wealthy benefactors. Men like uh, Aristarchus and Jason and some of the wealthy women who lived among the Roman elite of the city. And patrons had a collection of what were called clients. 
We might call them groupies, I suppose. It's difficult to find an exact term to explain what these clients were like. In both uh, his letters to the Thessalonians, Paul calls them idlers. You see, they asked for favors from their, to, to, for their patron. Uh, they received them, and then they showed their gratitude by being loyal to their patron in public. Uh, and you shouldn't think that the patron-client relationship was all done in the quiet. It was actually expected and publicized. The Roman philosopher uh, Seneca said that the giving and receiving of favors constituted the chief bond of human society. Isn't that astonishing? Think of what it would have been like to live in a society like that, where the whole culture was built as a network of favors. The patron-client relationship was the only way individuals could get connected to power and resources. So perhaps now you can understand better why the Apostle Paul went out of his way to train the Thessalonians uh, to work with their hands. He role-modeled a self-sufficient lifestyle for them. You see, he wasn't just attacking general laziness. He was breaking down an entire cultural norm. He was attacking the very basis of this patron-client network. But why? Why is it so dangerous? Well, I haven't yet told you the really important thing about these clients. And to explain that, we need to go back to politics. You see, clients were more than groupies. Because in political life, a patron used his clients as political activists. That's what they were. Their job was to make noise on their patron's behalf, stir up public opinion. They were involved in political campaigns in the public square, probably drove a big red bus with 350 million inside, lobbying for their patron's political advancement. So many of these Thessalonian believers, and thank you for sticking with me through all that, but here's the point. Many of these Thessalonian believers were up to their necks in politics. We might say that they were entangled in the great Roman project to build heaven on earth. Now, just think how embarrassing the Apostle Paul's doctrine of Christ's return would be for them. Seriously? You want me to start saying in public that the kingdoms of this world are doomed? You want me to wander down to the gate of the imperial temple and tell the priests that little Caesar's days are numbered? No one would sell me any food or supplies if I even thought of doing that. But one day, a most convenient lie turned up. A forged letter purporting to be from Paul. And this letter said that the day of the Lord had already come. The letter said, I didn't mean all that stuff about the skies parting to be taken literally. The counterfeit Paul said, the second coming of Christ is a spiritual thing. A a process even. One that's well underway already. So there's nothing embarrassing about that. All you clients can still help your wealthy patrons build heaven on earth. And here's the thing, that is a classic move made by liberals down through the centuries. Spiritualize all the embarrassing bits of the Christian story. Take the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Listen to liberal theologians like Rudolf Bultmann, who reduced the Easter story to a mental event inside a believer's life. Here's what he said. The real Easter faith is the faith in the word of preaching which brings illumination. If the event of Easter Day is in any sense an historical event, it's nothing else than the rise of faith in the risen Lord. The resurrection itself is not an event of history. Now, Western culture is very happy with that sort of idea. Jesus' resurrection now just exemplifies how death isn't the final word. The whole thing's an allegory, a metaphorical light of the rebirth we all have when we give of ourselves to others. So, you get the point, right? 
The easiest way to get rid of, to get an easy life as a Christian is to reduce the embarrassing bits of the gospel into vague spiritual ideas. And that is what this false teaching did. The embarrassing idea that Christ would actually intervene in history, that he would split the skies and return with all the authority of heaven behind him and take the world by the scruff of the neck and establish justice, all that could be reduced to some vague spiritual idea. Oh, the relief. It's a very strong temptation, isn't it? To squirrel away the embarrassing bits of the Bible. But it comes at a price. This little lie had caused an earthquake to go off in the Thessalonians' worldview and had left them anxious and unsure of what they actually believed about anything anymore. I don't know if you've ever played the game called Jenga. It is a nerve-wracking game where each player has to gingerly approach a tower composed of wooden blocks and pull one block away without collapsing the entire tower. There's a fantastic video on Facebook at the moment uh, where a dog wins the game. Uh, But anyway, sometimes removing an apparently small element of the Christian faith from your worldview can cause it to tremble. It is dangerous to believe theological lies, even apparently small ones. So this little story about a forged letter is really important. Most of the heresies and problems in the church today could be put down to forgeries of Paul's writings. Liberal theologians who say, well, we obviously don't have to take Paul literally here. Come on. The spiritual idea behind the thing is what matters. But beware of the dangerous consequences of believing that lie. In verses 3 through 5, next slide, Alex. Paul describes for us the biggest lie that has ever been told. And he reassures his confused readers, don't believe that lie. Don't believe the lie that the the day of the Lord has, has, has not come as some spiritual idea. He says the return of Christ is a historical moment, but it hasn't happened yet. Because in God's grand story, some terrible stuff is going to happen first. God is going to allow humanity to try to build heaven on earth. And that great enterprise will be led by a single individual, a counterfeit Christ, someone Paul calls the man of lawlessness. Notice, Christ appeared in chapter 1 at the second coming. He appeared. And you get exactly the same language here. This individual appears. He is an antichrist. Christ is God-made man, but this is man-made God. Christ comes to judge the world with judicial fairness, This man is entirely lawless. You see, even the Babylonian and Persian despots like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Xerxes, all those men were bound by the law. The law of the Medes and the Persians couldn't be broken, even by the king. But this Antichrist is above all law. He rules by raw, undiluted power. He tears up every creatorial boundary, every one of the creator's laws, and covenants. And now comes the biggest lie ever told. It's also the oldest lie ever told. In the Garden of Eden, Satan promised humanity that they would be like God. And now this counterfeit Christ exalts himself, enthrones himself as an object of worship. He is worshipped as God. 
Just think of the first commandment written in those two stone tablets at Mount Sinai. You shall have no other gods before me. But now a real man enthrones himself as God. The grim story Paul is telling here is also told by the Lord himself in Matthew chapter 24 and by the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation. And John pictures this Antichrist as a great amoral beast, the beast of Revelation. And the people in Revelation say this, who is like unto the beast? Now the last time you read language like that is way back in the book of Exodus when the people say, who is like unto Jehovah? Now, just in case you think this is a religious man's nightmare, modern philosophers, unbelievably, have been talking openly about this stuff. The founder of positive philosophy was a man called uh, Auguste Comte. He created a humanist religion. We just sang that lovely Trinitarian hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Well, Comte created a humanist religion complete with a Trinitarian God who was to be worshipped. He called it the new supreme being called Humanity, earth and destiny. Another famous writer uh, called uh, Feuerbach said this, you see, we don't need to believe in a God out there. When we talk about God, we're really talking about the human race as a whole. Mankind as a whole is absolute, almighty. And so he says, when we talk about God loving us, all we mean is mankind loves us. And when we talk about God saving us, it's mankind who saves us. For man Man is God, Feuerbach said, and had a huge influence on a man called Karl Marx. And just think what disasters came from that. Remember, this all flows from humanity's decision to cast the true and living God out of this world. John Lennon's imagine always leads to Belinda Carlyle's attempt at heaven on earth. You sow wheat, one day you reap wheat. You sow barley, one day you will reap barley. Where you have sown atheism, you will reap the deification of man. When we read Revelation's awful account of this awful moment in history, we learn that at first, the man of lawlessness is hugely popular. He's loved and worshipped. But the wheels come off the humanist project, and he's revealed to be a monster beyond our darkest nightmares. And so a period of unimaginably intense suffering follows, a time which the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. In God's mercy, Christ then does part the skies and brings an end to the Antichrist's humanist nightmare. If you glance at verse 5, it might seem like a curious little postscript to Paul's argument. He asks, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Time and time again in these little letters, Paul urges the believers to remember what they had already learned. Very important principle. Remember what you have already learned. Paul is rebuilding their cracked worldview. He's stabilizing the Jenga tower, if you like. He's saying, don't get embroiled in Caesar's great Roman project, his attempt to build heaven on earth. The humanist project will end up in unspeakable horror and terror. So step away from all of that. Don't join in with the godless in their attempt to build a humanist utopia. Put your hope in the real historical moment when Christ returns. In verses 6 through 8, the third section, we learn about the long battle for truth. I was driving up from Dublin uh, last night talking to a friend about his father. 
My friend's dad has served faithfully as a street evangelist for many years. He leads teams to present the gospel at various public events. (coughs) But the man had become disconsolate and discouraged because the believers around him were losing hope. And my friend asked me what he could say when the landscape was so bleak at this time in history. Well, I said, remind him that he is standing for truth. What is our job as Christians in the light of this terrible future that Paul has explained to us? There is a great temptation to withdraw completely from the world outside and live in some sort of monastery while we wait for the return of Christ. And we in this church come from a tradition which sometimes came perilously close to that Gnostic escapism. But in these verses, the third section, we see that God is in control of history and all its timings. God loves this old world, you know. Just think of the care that he lavishes on it. He hasn't given up on it. One day the job he gave to the first Adam will be completed by the last Adam. So our job is to wait patiently for his plan to unfold and to stand for truth and also for beauty in this world. Because even though it's temporary, nothing good will be lost. I don't quite know how, but all the best of God-honoring work will be transmuted into the world to come. There will be Bach in heaven. I don't just mean the man, of course he will be there, but also his music. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us of the care that God lavishes on temporary things like a flower, a lily, clothing it in beauty, even though it only lasts for a short space of time. Well, what goes for lilies also goes for universes. Our job is to adorn this temporary old world with truth and beauty. And in that sense, the church acts like a restraint upon the principle of lawlessness that's already at work in this world. But, says verse 7, that restraining influence will suddenly be withdrawn. Some of you will know, scholars have argued for centuries over this verse. Supposed to be the most mysterious verse in the New Testament. Trying to work out who or what the restraining influence is. Open up any commentary and you will get a different answer. With extreme tentativeness, I do see here strong support for the rapture of the church, occurring before the sheer moral ugliness of the man of lawlessness is revealed at the onset of the tribulation. Let me quickly say that I I wouldn't die in a ditch to defend that interpretation, but it does seem to fit better than most of the other ones. Well, whatever the details of the story, verse 8 floods the heart with hope and relief as we see the great lie put down. Read that and then remember that tremendous poem from Isaiah 14. The man of, of lawlessness is overthrown by the one that which Revelation calls faithful and true. It's the truth of the word of God which collapses the great lie. And so the long battle for truth has been won. You see, this is God's great game. God doesn't win by power. He allows humanity to try out its idolatrous lies, but in the end, only the truth is left standing. That's the game. The final three verses, I'm afraid, are particularly horrific. On first reading, they seem completely implausible. Surely any half-sane person, when confronted with the collapse of the Antichrist, when they see the appearance of Christ in all his majesty, 
Surely any sane person would bow down and acknowledge truth. But no. They still will prefer the counterfeit. People never enter hell because they lack a knowledge of the truth. They walk into it because they refuse to love the truth. Instead, says Paul, they delight in wickedness. Here is a takeaway point from these final verses. Your eternal destiny is determined by your relationship to truth. This final section is saying that people had the opportunity to receive the truth. It was given to them many times, but when at last they rejected the truth with their eyes open, preferring the lie, God will eventually say, as he honors their free will, if you will not have the truth, have your own choice. Believe the lie. Now, this is solemn stuff, isn't it? But God will, in the end, give people their choice. Being sent to hell is about being made to stand in your own choice. If there's any non-Christian in the room just now, can I ask you to compare the ghastly story of man's attempt to become God with the sheer beauty of the story about God becoming a man? Here is no story of vaulting ambition. God chose to be born in a manger, who, being in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be grasped at to being equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him. That is a story that can break a rebel's heart. The story of a humble God who gave himself for the very creatures who had rebelled against him. Come to Calvary. And see man's vaulting pride as the counterfeit thing that it is. Survey the Prince of Glory dying for you. And pour contempt on all your pride. Any thoughtful Christian must bow their hearts at the sheer solemnity of this teaching. But I finish by asking you, Christian to circle back to the opening verses. Because there, you remember, we saw a group of Christians get into trouble because they believed a lie. I am acutely conscious that this talk has taken us over some hard terrain. So what was the point of it all? What's the so what here? Well, your children may experience some of the stuff we thought about today. Listen to the words of the Lord himself in Matthew 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, the very elect. How will you prepare your kids to stand on a day like that? By being very careful never to believe a lie. Even a seemingly insignificant one. Always be on the lookout for those who forge, who counterfeit the Apostle Paul's teaching. Because it is in the small loyalties to truth that we protect our Christian worldview from cracking. The last verses taught us that our eternal destiny is determined by our relationship to truth. 
So while we wait for the skies to part, let us resolve to hold on to God's truth with unswerving loyalty, even the embarrassing bits. Thank you for your patience. Let's close in prayer. <coughs> Our Father in heaven, we are conscious um, that this strange and dark portion of Scripture has raised some very solemn questions for all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. So we ask simply that your word would speak to our hearts. But we thank you above all, Lord, for the astonishing contrast between this hideous humanism of man seeking to become God and throning himself above the stars with all his vaulting ambition, the sheer contrast with the humble God who chose to be born in a manger. Light of light, God of God, walking our ugly, grim streets, stepping aside politely to let us pass, acting as a servant, coming to give his very life for the creatures who had rebelled against him. And we've just asked, Lord, particularly for those of us here who know and love you, that the sheer moral beauty the sheer moral grandeur of that story will seize our hearts and our imaginations once again. And like Thomas, we will say, my Lord and my God, that we recognize once again we are in the presence of that which is ultimately real. Help us, Father, as this church to be loyal to truth, even the embarrassing bits. And then, Father, just as we close, We pray for any in this room who are yet without Christ that they would feel the urgency and ask themselves what is their relationship to truth. We ask that you part us in your fear and with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.